What is your take on the effect that COVID-19 has had on the real estate market and the closings that you've seen so far? The primary impact that I've seen is really on the financing side of things. Hey everybody, it's Zen here. And on this episode of the Prime Properties podcast, I have Eric from Blackstone Law here talking about the effects that COVID-19 has had on the closings with real estate. Blackstone Law is the firm that we recommend a lot for a lot of our closings because they know what they're doing and they're really quick. Now, some of the things that we also discuss in this episode and podcast is that what happens if you can't close? Can you back out of a purchase and sale agreement because of COVID-19? What are the penalties of extending and any kind of precautions that you should take if you are going to be transacting in the near future. Hope this will help you guys with kind of surviving the pandemic with your real estate journey and enjoy the episode. Good day, Toronto. Welcome to the next episode of Prime Properties Podcast here. I have Eric Lee from Blackstone Law, who does a lot of the clerk work for a lot of the closings there. And we want to bring him on today just so that we have a little bit of insight as to if there's any issues revolving around COVID-19 and some of the closings that's happening in real estate. Why don't you say hi, everyone, Eric? All right. Thank you for having me, Zen. Um, just to preface before we get started, uh, I'm a law student uh, with Blackstone Law. Uh, we do uh, a wide range of residential and commercial real estate transactions. Um, the discussion we're aiming to have today here is not intended as legal advice. However, we do want to provide some perspective uh, from what we've seen uh, from the fallout of COVID-19 and its impact on real estate transactions. Um, hopefully yeah. we're able to give you guys a little bit of uh, useful information that you're able to take away. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you coming on the show, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things, and you know, I've been talking and dealing with some closings as of the last few weeks is what is your take on the effect that COVID-19 has had on the real estate market and the closings that you've seen so far? So, the primary impact that I've seen is really on the financing side of things. Mm -hmm. So in terms of a seller's obligations, typically everything stays put. When you have a firm agreement, the seller's obligations don't really change. The, the bank's still able to discharge mortgages. So from that perspective, the seller can complete their obligations under the contract. However, uh, from a buyer's perspective, because banks are now tightening uh, their conditions before financing, it's creating a lot of unforeseen delays mm -hmm. uh, in transactions. And sometimes you're encountering cases where there are just delays where the underwriters are reviewing the files and they're adding some conditions that can be fulfilled. But also at the same time, we're seeing some buyers encountering new conditions that they weren't expecting that have now put them in positions where they're not able to close at all. Are you able to talk about what kind of conditions the banks are putting in that's making it difficult? Yeah. So for example, uh, because of the change in income at this point, a, a lot of them are asking for increased down payments. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of uh, newer prospective uh, investor uh, buyers uh, are now in positions where they have to put upwards of 30% down. Yeah. Um, so in these instances, you know, you're, you're, you may not have budgeted for that uh, when you entered into the transaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and the alternative to institutional lending uh, would be obtaining B lender financing or private mortgages. And in yeah. a lot of these cases, you're encountering interest rates that are upwards of nine, 10%, which make closing the deal uh, not the most commercially reasonable approach. Yeah. So now buyers are faced with a hard choice of whether or not they should complete the transaction at all. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot of people resorting to a full mortgage with a B lender or they're kind of bridging with like a second position? 
So one of the things to keep in mind uh, is, well, to answer your question, there's a mix of both, but uh, mm -hmm. in most cases, um, that's not really a possibility. The reason being is that with institutional lenders, whether they be A lenders being TD, uh, Scotiabank, and B lenders, Home Trust, Street Capital, et cetera, yeah. they have very stringent conditions that they are the only lenders to be in first position. So yeah. from a contractual standpoint, um, you're not technically supposed to have uh, private lending uh, in uh, subsequent positions after the mm -hmm. first mortgage. Um, now, there are, I guess, gray areas that some buyers have, have tried to use to get around this, mm -hmm. um, but, but the technical answer is that it's, it's typically not allowed because of uh, the conditions under the first mortgage. Got it, got it. So then how are a lot of these buyers going about the closing right now? So a, a lot of them are, are frankly, like they're not in positions to close at all. Okay. Um, our, our firm has been approached uh, either by clients that we've had closing scheduled for, and then now they're falling through, or we have prospective buyers that have had firm agreements that are coming to us, asking us for advice as to um, how to mitigate their exposure um, in the case that they don't close. Yeah. Uh, so so what we're, we're seeing is a lot of buyers really weighing their options because although there are alternative financing methods uh, that mm -hmm. might allow them to close, uh, the interest rates and, and the carrying costs are, are too high for them to, to consider it. So they're you know, exploring the potential risks of not closing and what the fallout might be in that regard. Yeah, so I think one of the big questions a lot of people have is they're stuck in this situation. And the reason why we're telling this is not to say it's a doomsday prediction for everyone. We're just trying to get the good information out to everyone that may be caught in this uh, particular situation right now. So what kind of exposures or what kind of penalties will happen if say a buyer doesn't close on a contract or a deal? Okay. So, should I, so I should preface, um, this is not, again, not intended as advice, but this is uh, a number of options that have come up uh, in, in the course of negotiations uh, on several transactions. Yeah. So the most typical uh, relief that a buyer has in, in most cases and outside of the context of COVID-19 as I'm sure Zen you're familiar with is yeah. just the mutual release. Mm -hmm. So um, in a market where you're facing um, uh, increasing prices, it's mm -hmm. actually favorable for a seller to consider a mutual release because if from the time a buyer has signed the agreement and you know typically two to three months have elapsed on a, mm -hmm. a typical closing and the market is more favorable uh, the seller might actually just be willing to terminate the deal, release the deposit back to the buyer. Correct. Yeah. And relist the property uh, at the prospect of potentially gaining even more uh, from selling to somebody else. Uh, yeah. Obviously, this is a unique situation, not just because the market is trending downwards, but it, we're looking at market confidence to a point where a seller is uncertain if they'll uh, ever be able to sell within the next few months. Yeah. Um, you're facing a number of logistical issues. As an agent, you obviously have concerns with listing the property and, and attending to it. Yeah, um, for sure. We can't physically result. show the property much right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so that's obviously a concern in itself. And then on top of that, you have such a, a depressed market because a lot of people have lost their jobs. Um, yeah. Cash flow for business owners that might otherwise be using that money to invest in property, you know, that income source is now cut off you don't have a lot of eager buyers in the market. So even uh, if there is some demand, you're still looking at a bunch of prospective sellers that might just be uh, left uh, 
in the cold, so to speak. Yeah, um, for sure. So I, I think uh, in that regard, the the mutual release right now is really the best tool. But from a practical perspective, from what we've seen, it the the sellers are almost at a loss as to what their their best recourse is because yeah. there's so much uncertainty um, as to the remedies that they might otherwise be entitled to. Um, so from a buyer's perspective, uh, the, the most perfect situation would be just to get uh, unequivocal mutual release for you to walk away from the deal. Yeah. Um, the, the nuance of a mutual release is that, you know, you could forfeit the deposit um, and that would, uh, free up both parties from liability, uh, releasing both sides. Yeah. Um, kind of like a negotiation, right? Saying, Hey, um, you can keep my deposit that I gave you whatever, like 5% of the purchase price. And then you are now, you know, no longer, you don't have to close the property anymore. Exactly. You're also looking at some cases where they release the deposit and the, the seller might ask for a bump. Uh, yeah. so an additional 20 or 30,000, for example, um, and in, in uh, that situation, they just give a little bit beyond the deposit and that would, uh, entice them to sign the mutual lease. Yeah. Um, in, in speaking with a, a couple of litigators though, when you're talking about the worst case scenario, so to speak, is where the, the seller is unwilling to sign a mutual lease and has mm -hmm. threatened litigation. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of these cases that may happen. I know you and I have seen a few of these back in 2017 yeah. and it, kind of feels like it right now if anyone who's kind of caught between a hard place right now right yeah so um for those that are unfamiliar with the uh, i guess the legal trend or the precedent that has existed in the courts over the years uh the where a buyer can't close on a deal if a, a seller were to relist the the property and mm -hmm. they sold at a lower price the courts have often ruled that uh, the the buyer that has breached their contract is now liable for the difference uh, in yeah. the price. So, so like, I think you and I haven't counted this enough, but for anyone who's listening, let's just use like actual numbers so people can kind of grasp what we're talking about. So let's just say um, a seller has sold their property for $500,000, right? To buyer A, but they can't close. But then they uh, terminate or they don't terminate, I guess they don't release it, but then they relist it and then they only sell it for 400. So are you saying the difference of $100,000 is now um, the responsibility of buyer A? Yes, uh, now it's not a catch-all, but um, in, in many cases, the, that's what we've seen uh, in terms of like judicial decisions. Um, this is a relatively recent phenomenon mm -hmm. um, that I've, uh, we've seen only kind of develop in, in the past decade or so uh, yeah. in, in terms of its prominence, but it is a huge issue. Um, especially in light of the hugely depressed prices that we're going to be seeing in the, in the following months. Yeah. So in these situ situations, what do you recommend, say, a buyer would do? Because it seems like the buyers are kind of caught in the most difficult situations right now. Yeah. So the, the thing is, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the exposure might be, because some litigators that are a little bit more philosophical have said that, well, you know, maybe the judges will be sympathetic uh, to the buyers uh, mm -hmm. because of this. What we're really in, encountering here is is not any, like any kind of recession or anything that we've seen in the past. It's really an unprecedented event. Yeah. Uh, there are the effects on uh, people's livelihoods and the economy uh, are, you know, we've, we've never encountered anything like this. Yeah. So there is the school of thought that uh, maybe the damages will not be as extreme as people are uh, worried about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then also there is the practical cost of litigation, whether it be time or money, right? So yeah. uh, a litigation file can take for you to get a judgment of any kind can take a year or even more than that sometimes. So depending on what um, a seller views as uh, their, because every seller has their own objectives. So mm-hmm. if they won't get the deposit all tied up and, and there's a ton of uncertainty in that regard, they might be more willing to uh, tend to a mutual release and tender on that in that regard, instead of uh, trying to sue for the deposit and damages. Uh, so I think, Every situation is uh, unique, but what a prudent buyer should be doing is um, communicating with the seller, um, mm-hmm. not right up on the last day saying, oh, I can't, you know, I, my, my mortgage fell through at the last second. And no, no, do we, you don't want to no. do that. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, I, right now, like, you know, buyers are aware of, of what, what's going on. It's not really like a case by case basis in, in the sense that financing is like a, a mixed bag for for buyers There's like a lot of more buyers are, are encountering issues than, than buyers that aren't right so yeah um like up front it's important to just establish what the seller's goals are uh, mm-hmm. with the property so if they're selling to buy then you might have additional exposure uh if the seller can't close the property they're looking to buy uh, yeah. that they were relying on on your purchase closing right so i i think that like in an ideal situation to answer your question that the mutual release is the best tool because it defeats a lot of the uncertainty uh, that you might have. Yeah. Uh, but again, like having a, a, a very well like planned and uh, method of communication with the seller and their agent so that, you know, there's no surprises. Cause I'm sure you've seen it in many instances when you notify a seller at the last minute that uh, the deal is in trouble or something oh, does, like that. Yeah. It yeah. does not go They're well. Just it not does very not go well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They would try to put every penalty possible on the buyer. Yeah. So I, I think if, if you feel as if you're, you know, running into issues, notify them early on and try to work something out. Yeah, for sure. I think that's kind of the best way to approach a lot of things right now because no one knows kind of like how long this is going to last and this is all new to everybody and almost every professional. It's just, let's just be nice and try to sort things out so that nobody is in any kind of damages, right? As per the law. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's it's hard to be a fortune teller in any regard. Uh, yeah. Just yesterday, uh, because because this is something that we've never seen before. I, I was uh, I was speaking to a real estate partner uh, that's been practicing uh, since the mid sixties, mm-hmm. and, and I asked him uh, what his outlook on on the market would be and what uh, remedies would be available to either party. And, and frankly, he wasn't even sure because the implications on buyers, because a, a, a lot of uh, these situations are out of anybody's control, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think like a, a lot of it is kind of like, no one knows what's going on. And I've been asked a few times, and I know I've spoken to you about it, kind of like, there's a lot of people talking about force majeure, which is just a fancy term for saying act of nature or sorry, act of God, right? Can people within the contracts kind of use that as an escape? So uh, in a standard ORIA form or like any form uh, for residential properties that a, a realtor might rely on, uh, it's not structured in there. Um, uh, guys, I'm just going to yeah. stop Eric there for a sec. Yeah. In, in case, or we're talking in like very technical terms. And I know Eric's trying to not say anything wrong from a legal perspective. ORIA is the Ontario Real Estate Association where 
uh, they have these standard pre-filled forms that if you ever bought a property is what we use to uh, kind of do the paperwork. Yeah. So uh, just to add on Zen's point, like there are a lot of standard clauses in there that just make an agent's job a little bit easier. Obviously every deal is structured, uh, you know, on a unique basis. You're going to have certain concerns that a buyer's going to have. And that's why a professional, you have a professional like Zen to, you know, address those concerns in the schedules to the agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, the most agents or and even lawyers would not turn their mind to uh, an instance such as this. So mm-hmm. uh, what we're having is um, a situation where in nearly all agreements, like I, I in, in my experience, I've never seen someone add a force measure clause into uh, a schedule uh, as in, to the agreement. Yeah. So uh, broadly speaking, um, it's not really a method for most buyers uh, to get out of uh, their obligations. Mm-hmm. Um, so a force majeure clause is really used where uh, the parties view the transaction to be uh, impossible to complete. Yeah. And the keyword is impossible. So for example, if, if now you're unable to get financing from a bank, that's not exactly uh, enough for you to escape liability under the contract. Yeah. Um, in theory, if you were able to find a private lender, and that, this is like the sliver, right? It's a, it's a test. So if, if you look at it and say there was an opportunity for you to get financing, however commercially unreasonable it might have been, you could have, technically speaking, fulfilled your obligations under the contract. So yeah. strictly from that perspective, uh, you would not be able to escape uh, your obligations. Yeah. Um, furthermore, um, and I'm sure Zen might be able to share some of these resources, which I'll provide later. But in, in a lot of lawyers' interpretations of what a force merger clause does is in its wording, it has to be very specific as to what these so-called acts of God uh, are. So, for example, one of the examples is if uh, a fire, right? So if, if a third party... But not as subject to arson, but let's say there's li- let's say there's <laughs> lightning. Yeah, yeah, lightning strikes the roof and then fire. <laughs> yeah, and your building burns down. Obviously, yeah. you can't fulfill certain terms, so there's no vacant uh, possession because there's no property, right? There's no possession so, at all. <laughs> exactly. So, in terms like that, it's very difficult to fulfill, or not even very difficult. It's impossible to fulfill your obligations under the contract. So, in those cases. The seller, for example, if it burned down, the seller couldn't close. And, and that's not really their fault because now you have no property to, to sell to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in most force merger clauses that might appear in leases and whatnot, uh, you would have to read it very carefully to see if, for example, in this case, pandemic is one of the, the uh, terminologies that are expressed in the, in the clause. So mm-hmm. if it's not, then there's a, a large likelihood that it'll be unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage anyone that is considering like to enter into an offer now uh, before they they have their agent uh, and, and like insert a force major clause, speak with your lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Well, so now that we're talking now, okay. So there's just a couple of things that are going on right now. Um, I'm just going to kind of jump in. There's been a lot of languages that I've seen agents and brokerages put out there for COVID-19 kind of some including like, you know, if third parties such as banks, appraisals, none of those can go. The buyer still, sorry, the offer is still conditional on those or like there's an automatic delay. Like what are you seeing from a ramification on the, that perspective for COVID-19? If you're say so, trying to buy something right now. 
so I, I think it, it really boils down to the reasonableness of, of the provisions. Um, mm-hmm. So we, and uh, with some of the lawyers at our firm that have been negotiating uh, some of these agreements, if you're looking at terminology that addresses, well, if you're unable to get an appraisal or any of these things, and you extend the transaction by a few days or, or weeks or however long it gets for the, or however long it takes for the infrastructure to satisfy your financing needs, for example, yeah, that is a reasonable provision. What ends up happening is there's a great deal of uncertainty if you have a catch-all force majeure clause that says, well, if I can't get financing, this deal's terminated and, and both parties walk away. That's basically uh, just like a permanent conditional until closing then, right? Yeah. So it depends if like a seller will entertain that. Right. And, and with some of the properties, you know, maybe they're not being, uh, they're not as competitive as they are, uh, as I'm sure you, you're familiar with Yeah. Uh, where you have, you know, bully offers and then, you know, some properties getting 30, 40 offers at a time. Um, I don't know if that'll be happening in this kind of market, but I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so go ahead. So, so then what we're saying is if it is permanently conditioned, then if anyone who's selling, your recommendation is talk to a lawyer to see what these provisions mean, right? Because you don't want to basically have a property sold conditionally up until last minute and it gives them the option to kind of back out, right? Yeah, from a seller's perspective. The, the thing is to, to bear in mind is that um, where some people are trying to put these catch-all clauses is that when the original standard uh, agreement of purchase and sale template that's used by all realtors was mm-hmm. prepared, there was a lot of thought that was put into the standard clauses that are in there, right? Yep. Now, for, for people to now just unilaterally throw in clauses left and right to try and, you know, limit their client's exposure, understandably, you know, you, you want to, you need to protect your client. But again, like these are clauses that, you know, should pass through a, a, a lawyer's desk before, be, because there are cases where uh, if a term is too unreasonable, it might not be favorable uh, if it ever comes across uh, a judge, right? So you yeah. want to keep these things in mind and then maybe have a lawyer look at it before uh, you proceed with it. Yeah, I think that's kind of the recommendation I've been telling everyone too. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of pre-built clauses you have from like brokerages or your agents. Like in my experience, I would say a good chunk of agents don't actually fully understand some of the language and the clauses in the <laughs> agreement of purchase and sale. Yeah. So, so if your agent doesn't understand it and you're just really nilly signing things, then you could be in a lot of trouble. Mm. Yes. So we we have cases, and and this is just from a contractual uh, perspective. Yeah. There are are sometimes provisions that are so unreasonable that um, you know, in speaking with the lawyers that do M and A or across the board, any kind of transactional work, they've they've said, oh, we just leave the clause in there because the other lawyer is going to fight about it, but. if it ever gets litigated upon on that specific condition, it's going to get thrown out. So they just rather yeah. leave it. Right. So um, that's not something the average person would put their mind to because in their mind is, well, oh, this, this provision is bulletproof. Yeah. In, in fact, in some cases it can be too onerous on the other party. Yeah. And that's where I think not many people understand like what's going on. And again, let's just rather than kind of leave a lot of people listening out there to say anything you're doing, I would just, recommend having a lawyer review it like eric or somebody review it just because we're in unprecedented times yeah yeah like i saw the other day and i was actually going to ask you about this earlier is mm-hmm. i saw someone put a condition on a virtual purchase right mm-hmm. and they said it's conditional upon the buyer entering the property um 
after COVID-19 ends to make sure the property is in good condition. But then it doesn't say when the buyer ends and basically now you're permanently tied up. Yeah. So if you're a seller, uh, then, you know, you're in a lot of trouble in that regard, right? So yeah. I, I feel like a lot of these clauses that are intended to protect the buyer um, are, are great in, in, yeah. in the sense like, you know, you, you don't want your financing to fall to, excuse me, and, and uh, because of that, you don't want to lose your deposit and expose yourself to risk. But from a seller's perspective, there are, you want to make sure that that condition doesn't effectively bind you the transaction indefinitely. We don't know how long this uh, lockdown is going to affect us. We, yeah. you know, there's, uh, depending on what you're reading, you know, the number of months that this might go on for. <laughs> yeah, let's not make any predictions. We have no yeah. idea. Like you can be optimistic or pessimistic about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Eric. So if that doesn't make sense, let's kind of talk about like penalties. Okay. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, um, our listeners are buyers, they can't close or like they need an extension. What kind of penalties are you usually looking for? Or sorry, what are the looking to pay if you're trying to extend the closing to kind of get your ducks in order to make sure you can actually close? So I guess the first thing to consider is just make sure you have an adequate amount of time uh, when you're extending. Now, um, it's much less of an issue when, you know, a mortgage broker tells you it's just going to be a few days uh, mm -hmm. and, and your deal's kind of just up in the air. But usually uh, if, if they tell you it's a few days, it might drag on another day or two beyond that mm -hmm. and, and everything's fine. But in these exceptional circumstances, we've had, uh, you know, banks, as you've seen with, with some of your clients where, they're basically giving every indication that they're okay to, to move forward with the deal. Mm -hmm. And then really at the 11th hour, they're adding additional conditions that, that make it untenable. So it's very yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. So if there is a possibility that you might have to switch lenders like midway, midway through even. So uh, if you're working with one bank and like, well, the, the first thing is just make sure you have adequate time. So if you're going to negotiate for an extension, it always err on the side of caution. Yeah. Um, don't be too optimistic in this because there are logistical and infrastructural challenges that the banks are facing to mm -hmm. uh, satisfy uh, their borrowers and, and getting money out. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, it's also just the, the bank's underwriting process to make sure their uh, loans are secure. That might take a little longer. Than so are you seeing both of those taking longer and like appraisals? Uh, it's really uh, on a bank to bank basis. And, and what I've seen, frankly, is that some days are, are worse than others. Um, <laughs> so you, unknown. <laughs> yeah, because uh, frankly, like we, we have a lot of, you know, with the institutional lenders, the A lenders I, I can speak to, they're generally very consistent. You, you yeah. kind of know how long it's going to take. Uh, but so in some, and most days they're on time, but uh, we've seen a couple of cases where you know, the, the funding doesn't come until after two in the afternoon. Yeah. So it takes a little bit longer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, advice for people out there is if you need an extension, try to get one, but like what kind of penalties are they going to be looking at if they can't get it? Like normally that you would see. So are, do you mean in terms of like if the, the contract's terminated or if the, the, oh, what, sorry. Like if, the, like what the seller need, would, would. Yeah. Like what the seller's looking for. Like if say the banks come back last minute and say, Hey, we can't close it. We need more time or like something happens with the mortgage. Generally from what we've seen so far, at least, um, and, and just bearing in mind, it's only really been a few weeks. I, I think with everyone stuck inside, it feels yeah. like it's been months that have <laughs> gone by, but, uh, we're really just maybe three weeks, four weeks in, into the, uh, extremity that I, I think most people were still throwing dinner parties the first week of March. Uh, uh, but, but we're really seeing at this point in time, uh, our sellers being cooperative. 
Okay, that's uh, good. I've actually had a lot of uh, a lot of transactions where, uh, I mean, reasonable delays uh, within a week or two. Yeah. Uh, they've given them without penalty so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of that, I, I can't, at least I don't, I don't want to forecast anything, but from what we've seen, everybody's been reasonable. And then the ones that they have charged uh, penalties, it's more so just carrying costs of the property. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just a, a very nominal legal fee, uh, if that. Yeah. So for those who are listening, don't understand what carrying costs is. It's basically whatever the seller's like mortgage, taxes, utilities, or like legal fees. And it's just like calculate all in, right? Yeah. 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 And now that's not to say like if the situation deteriorates, like we're, you're looking at the first extension, right? So you, you might get your first extension granted and then uh, you need another one because by that time your uh, financing is still up in the air. There's mm-hmm. no telling what a seller might do in, that, in those instances because a lot of it is discretionary, right? Because you yeah. have a contractual obligation to you know, satisfy and they're willing to entertain giving you more time or, or, or whatever. But if they decide not to, then that's also up to them. And, but if they do give you an extension, they might, again, impose a bunch of penalties, uh, such as if, you know, if they wanted to add like $2,000 extension fee as a penalty just paid to the seller yeah. up front, then, then they can do that, right? So Yeah, because the buyers are kind of at the mercy of the sellers, right? Yeah. Yeah, like if the seller is reasonable, they'll kind of play nice. And it sounds like most people are right now. But if you encounter someone who is unreasonable, they can ask for like the moon and the stars and it could get really difficult, right? Yeah, so, so don't presume anything. And that's why, uh, as we were talking about earlier, just having a uh, communication early on uh, yeah. is important in, in these instances because you want to have them on your side. You want them to be understanding of what you're going through and, and not just telling them at the 11th hour that their deal is blowing up. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think I can speak from experience too. Like if you know, or you sense something is going on right now, then you should definitely let people know like on the seller side and the seller's agent. Cause I know Eric and I have done a lot of deals where we're like, okay, well the mortgage is going to go sideways. We better notify them to get a little bit more time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, for sure. So, so what happens to say, um, build builders, sorry, clients who have pre-construction with builders and <laughs> Are you seeing any kind of delays from Tarion or kind of like first occupancy delays or even like delays of closing on your side? And I know it's just been like two, three weeks, but have you seen any? Yeah. So um, we've, we've actually had a small handful of um, delays on interim occupant, uh, interim closing uh, or yeah. occupancy for, for those who aren't familiar. So an occupancy closing um, is where you just get the keys, but the title isn't transferred to you at that point. Yeah, and so that's just from people, a, sorry, interrupted. Yeah. Just for people out there, this is that period where most people call phantom rent. You don't own the property yet, but like a lot of the times, you have the right to like move in or lease it out. Yeah. So it, we have delays from that uh, point, but again, that's not like a really like a legal thing, right? It's just that there are a lot of construction sites are shut down right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, with the premier saying that uh, they're gonna uh, impose even stricter uh, essential business uh, restrictions. Um, and we don't really know what's going to happen in, in, with, with construction. So if you have a deal that's upcoming or a close, uh, interim closing that's scheduled, um, there's no telling if uh, in the next few weeks you get a notice that might tell you that uh, it's being put off. Um, what, from what I've seen, the, the primary point of concern that uh, some of my, uh, our clients are experiencing is where they've already just recently completed their interim closing yeah. and moved in. 
And now, because with, with Terry on, you, you know, you set forth a list of uh, all the deficiencies that are in your yeah, property. Yeah, the, ins- the, the inspection, yeah. Yeah. So usually they're completed in a, well, you would hope, a relatively reasonable <laughs> amount. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but even never without, No, exactly. And that's the issue because even without COVID, uh, you're still running into a ton of issues. Yeah. Uh, but with it, um, you, you're in even worse shape. Uh, you know, we, we've had clients come to us and say, Hey, like, what the hell? Like, how come I'm paying all this money, but yeah. now the construction stopped. I'm not getting access to any of the amenities that uh, they told me I was going to get such as the gym or the pool that they told me was going to open next month. Now they're saying all construction is halted. Yeah. Right. So there are concerns, especially if uh, the deficiencies in your unit or your home, like they're huge. Like, you know, you have people sometimes there's problems with the shower. Yeah. And, but these are things that, um, unfortunately, like there isn't a bunch of leeway in like Terion's relatively rigid in that regard. It, it follows yeah. the schedule and until, you know, workers really get back on site, it's going to be an issue. Yeah. So what you're, you're saying basically the builders would have some kind of pr- provision in there saying, Hey, you know what, like, because of this unforeseeable delay, like you kind of, as a person living there, you just kind of have to deal with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the unfortunate thing is like, they're also still paying the phantom rent of like the taxes, insurance and maintenance that comes along with occupancy. Yep. yep. And, and you're not really, there's no r- real effective recourse uh, that like we've seen that's given a lot like buyers, like any kind of, you know, uh, forgiveness in terms of the occupancy, you have to keep paying them. Oh, so there, there's no kind of, the builders are being nice about this. No, no. Hmm, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess there's really nothing that people can do. It's an unfortunate con of pre-construction, right? Yeah. Like the thing to keep in mind is that like from a builder's perspective, like they, they want to pass on the cost as quickly as they can to, to the buyer. That's the yes. unfortunate reality. So as soon as they get an occupancy permit, which legally allows them to uh, have the unit, have the buyers move in at that point, they're yeah. in essence free to, to collect those payments. Yeah, so yeah, there's exactly. a lot of leeway uh, in that regard. Yeah. Mm, I gotcha. So, so what's happening now with like, say, pre-construction keys or even like regular closing keys? Like, are, so is with, there still a weird way of doing it? Because like people are afraid to touch other things. Uh, so with pre-con, um, generally speaking, it's it's still the same process. Uh, yeah. Although, like, the, just spreading out the appointments and whatnot, so that uh, in the sales office or the, the site office, there aren't you know large gatherings of people. Yeah. Um, with uh, Residential uh, closings, on the other hand, uh, we are seeing a change. So most law offices, uh, so with with agents, I'm presuming you guys are relatively mobile. You guys can work on laptops and, and move around. Like yes. <laughs> in a legal profession, there are a lot of people that are, like their uh, law programs and, and whatnot are, are static. Like they're, they're just set up on one computer mm-hmm. um, and they, they don't have virtual resources. So a lot of firms are now actually not shuttering, but they're just temporary closed as they, as they try to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that have very quickly moved on to uh, remote access and uh, work, working from home procedures, uh, they, because like, for example, I can only speak from my experience, but our firm, we are not handling uh, keys or closing packages at all. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally with, with real estate, uh, for anyone who's ever purchased a pre-construction property, for example, you probably had to sign 100, 150 pages of documents. Yep. Uh, and the typical process is we send everything hard copy to the builder's lawyer. 
And then on top of that, they always ask for certified checks and, yeah. and they don't accept direct deposits, wires or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on that end, um, things have been relatively smooth because they've been accommodating in that regard. Their most closings are done electronically now. Yeah. Uh, so they do accept wires, digital documents. So um, on, on that end of things, th- things have shaken up a little bit um, because even with, to, sorry to answer your question, with residential deals between a buyer and seller, a lot of the time we uh, just have either the agents coordinate the keys or yeah. we have them left at concierge and it's condo or uh, they're left at a lockbox because we just want to minimize the contact between the parties if possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. I know we've done a couple like that recently too. Yeah. yeah. Well, Eric, I know there's a lot of things going on right now and you're busy with a lot of things. I do appreciate your time. Is there anything that you kind of want to add for anyone that's listening out there? Kind of like what to watch out for, what to be careful of in amidst this pandemic? I, I think... Um, like from from the transactions that have gone smoothly to date um, yeah. is is really and, and this might not might seem like common sense is but it's it's really just to not take anything for granted uh, in terms of um, all the obligations that you have under your agreements mm-hmm. um, when what I mean by that is we typically in, in normal circumstances see a lot of um, buyers for example just taking their time with financing for example they don't they don't they think oh, if I just go to the bank a week or two weeks before my closing and I, I, they'll sort out the mortgage for me. Yeah. Um, we're, we're living in a very unique time and, and things like that you know, shouldn't be taken for granted. You should always assume the worst case in uh, these situations because the situation is very fluid. Um, right now, you know, for example, law firms have seemed to establish a sense of normalcy in, in how we're conducting business. That's good. We, we, we don't know if, for example, with additional shutdowns, that there's even less movement, right? And with banks, we don't know. So it's important just to have all your ducks in a row as early as you can. And, and as we've been discussing, just keep a constant pulse on, on communicating with the other party mm-hmm. so they, they know what's going on. And then, because ultimately with, with any kind of transactional work, typically the goal is for both parties to close. So yeah. if, if you indicate that it's your intention that you want to you know, fulfill your, your obligations and complete the deal uh, and you're very forthcoming about it, then it's in their best interest to work with you. Yeah. Transparency, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. And some, and sometimes, you know, that's not really the case in, in normal circumstances. A lot of the times, you know, the, the broker will tell you, Oh, just wait, just wait. And then the day of closing, tell people you can't close. Yeah, that's that not really going to fly in, in this. Yeah, in, in these conditions. So yeah, so take, don't take the time for granted. Do everything right away. Yeah, and and, and the thing is that you want to make sure, um, like when you, and what what so I want to expand upon is when you're saying that have everything done right away is like contact your broker. You know, make sure like all your paperwork with uh, your mortgage is done right up front mm-hmm. and don't delay. Like as soon as you sign the agreement, call your broker, get your insurance in check, you know, retain a lawyer, do all those things. And if, and if you have a lawyer before your deal goes from the hot review, everything even better. Yeah. Actually, yeah. You brought up a good question before I let you go. Mm-hmm. So if say a buyer signs the mortgage documents, once they've signed, can the bank come back and be like, hey, I want you to have 40% down payment? Uh, you can, the thing is, you, there's a lot of rare instances. So what I, my typical answer, my, my answer is no, uh, if you have a commitment signed because those okay. are the terms, right? But what 
a lot of the time, what was happening a lot of the time is uh, there are a lot of deals where there's a lot of other competing offers, which won't really be happening now. Yes. But sometimes your mortgage broker tells you everything is fine. You don't have a commitment in place. There's no instruction sent to the other lawyer, but you waive your, your financing condition because you think everything okay. is fine based yeah. on the outlook that your mortgage broker has given. So that's something to keep in mind too. Just make sure like you have, you know, something down pat uh, before you waive, if possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think from, from that end of things, it's, they can't like come back. If, if there's a commitment and, and this is the understanding that these are the terms, right? But uh, okay. in some cases where this is more so an issue that we've seen that where everything just turned the corner in the past few weeks, mm-hmm. where people didn't really put their mind to thinking that the uh, COVID-19 was going to be this serious. Yeah. So their brokers told them everything was fine. They firmed up the deal. Now, because of that and, and not having signed anything formally with the lender uh, before waiving, uh, that now they're stuck in this like uh, limbo. Yeah. So for basically anyone out there, like try to get that commitment before you kind of remove your financing condition because things are fluid, like we've been saying, right? Like it can change very easily and very quickly on you. Yeah. And then it, the thing is with, with um, you won't really run into this issue with institutional lenders per se, but if you have a B lender or a private lender and they decide to pull their funding, right? You mm-hmm. would have like, if, if they decide, oh, the, the conditions are bad, I'm going to get out of here. And you could sue them potentially for, for breaching uh, the terms of the contract in which they're supposed to fund your deal. Yeah. Right. But again, like right now, we're looking at a situation where the courts are closed. Uh, and oh, if yeah. you do bring an action against somebody, there's no telling uh, what's, what's going to happen. Yeah, I think let's not go down that path. I know where it can lead to. Like one yeah. will sue the other and things don't complete. It's just like a yeah. whole chain of things. We won't get yeah. there. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy today and uh, shedding some light on kind of what's happening. Um, is there any way that if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, yeah. So uh, you can contact me at Eric. That's E-R-I-C at blackstonelaw.ca. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to be uploading this on uh, YouTube? Yeah, I will. Or, okay. So perfect. So I'll provide you a link and then uh, Zen can share that to, with you guys. Yeah. So I just will go on YouTube. I'll put the links for Eric there. And if you're listening on a podcast, uh, you don't have to stop your car. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for having me, Zen. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, Eric. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. All right. Okay. Take, take care. You. Bye. Cheers.